You are listening to Underscore, a podcast of music and story. Welcome back to Underscore, the show that celebrates the rich tradition of movie music, one film at a time. I am Marty Brueggemann, and with me as always is my brother Will. We are so happy today to be sharing our interview with audio legend Alan Snelling, some of which was actually included in our episodes exploring the original score to John Williams' Star Wars. But we are so excited to be sharing the full extent of our conversation with Mr. Snelling on today's podcast. A bit of background on our guest. Uh, At the age of 20, Alan became a sound assistant to Eric Tomlinson at Anvil Studios in Denham, England, and was soon put to work assisting Tomlinson on some of the most legendary scores in film music history, including Alien, Superman, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and all three films of the original Star Wars trilogy. After the original Anvil location was demolished, the pair of Tomlinson and Snelling played a vital role in resurrecting Abbey Road's famous Studio One as a space for orchestral recording for film and television, a reputation that continues to this day. Alan's career following his partnership with Tomlinson saw him working on a variety of projects as a recording, mixing, and post-production audio engineer, including such varied film and television work as Silence of the Lambs, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, and BBC's Sherlock series. These days, Alan and his wife Sarah run their own company, Up For Loud, which provides film and TV audio post-production of the highest quality. Speaking with Alan was an absolute privilege and an unforgettable moving experience of its own. It's quite rare to come across an individual with so much first-hand impact on film music history. Please enjoy our conversation with Alan Snow. First of all, thanks again so much for joining us on the show. It really is a privilege to talk to you today, Alan. My pleasure. Uh, From what we understand, we're kind of flashing back far in time here. We think you began assisting Eric Tomlinson around 1975. Indeed. Uh, How would you describe working with Eric when you kind of first started assisting there? Um, Yeah, I started with him about mid-1975 as a sort of very junior what we called a tape op, a tape operator in those days in studios. Sure. Um, we uh, we hit it off really straight away. We had, um, I mean, there was twenty five years difference between us, but um, <laughs> there, there wasn't. You know, I mean, it was it was, sure. it was great, and I respected him greatly. He 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 didn't suffer fools gladly. He um, he did great work, and uh, I admired that. But we. We got on really well, and uh, he could see that I was very keen to learn the ways and um, was quick to learn the ways, and uh, we just got on. So we had a great working relationship. You know, you're in a, you're in a darkened studio for 15 hours a day. You've got to get on. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Rule one. So um, <laughs> we did. You know, we did. And of course, through him, you know, I mean, he had many, many clients, um, well-known clients of that day, um, Maurice Yard, John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith, to name but three, who um, 
you know, I I got the pleasure to to work with and assist on on all those recording sessions. And for me, uh, I was like a sponge. It just went in. You know, it, it was <laughs> I. That was my university. You know, just looking sure. at that and uh, jolly good it was as well. So yes, to answer the question, I got on very well with Eric and I had greatest regard for him and um, you know, we've remained friends up until his death two years ago and um, so we could always look back on on things and laugh and uh, I had to remind him quite a bit uh, of the past as he got older, he used to forget things. He didn't really have a problem with his mind, he just, as you get older, he forgot things. So. you know, so, yeah. So I, he's greatly missed, and uh, we had a great working relationship, you know? Yeah, an absolute legend. Correct me if I'm wrong, but we've read that Tomlinson traveled to the States to bid on the recording gig for Star Wars. When did you personally first hear about that session? Oh, okay. Uh, right, we're looking around about 76, I think it is, early 77. You, you know, I've got a diary, actually, and I was going to dig it out, and I haven't. But, oh, wow. Um, he he got to hear about the Star Wars session and, and really wanted to do it because he had worked with John Williams before and um, a lot of other studios of that time, well there weren't too many other studios doing cinema music in, in, in London at that time but they were all after it so sure, um, was, was it CTS that was also yeah CTS uh, at Wembley in West London and Olympic uh, Barnes in South West London they were sort of contenders you know if I remember and I can't be absolutely sure I think he called uh, John Williams and I think there was um, there was some communication with 20th Century Fox but I don't remember him actually coming going over to the States at that point but he got the gig so here we are (laughs) so when did you personally first hear about uh, Star Wars about a month before it really came into the recording studio at Anvil. Sure. And, uh, you know, it was, what's this in the diary? A thing called Star Wars. What's that? <laughs> uh, oh, I don't know. Some, they haven't got any money. You know, they, they wanted it cheap. We gave them a, <laughs> we gave them a discount. But Eric, wow. Eric was um, pleased that John Williams was the man involved because he, he had great regard for John and... Uh, it wasn't going to be a B movie if John Williams got involved with it. So uh, we, sure. we hung out for it, you know, and we waited for it to come in. And it did. And I can remember the first um, recording session. It was an evening session, a three hour session. And it's the first time I'd met John Williams, um, who I thought was brilliant. And, uh, you know, he was out there on the podium conducting the London Symphony Orchestra. And the first half of the session, just small cues, you know, I mean, and in those days we had a big um, cinema projection system on the end of the studio wall. It sure. was an old black and white dupe, um, nothing very much to see. Um, and it was just, you know, two or three cues we recorded. It was all very good and everything. In the control room was George Lucas um, and the uh, Gary Kurtz producer, uh, Kenny Womberg who became a really good friend of mine, um, the music editor, a few other sure. people, and there we were, we were recording Star Wars. The tea break came, and the copyist I saw was putting out parts for main title Star Wars. 
and I thought, <laughs> oh, this might be interesting. And uh, they start. I pressed the record button, bang, and they played the main title of Star Wars right in front of us. And with the film oh. running, and you know, it was an emotional time. We knew the world had changed. We saw this film, uh, the title sequence with the letters going away, and then the spaceship coming overhead. We'd never seen anything like it. And this was just an old black and white dupe copy, but it was projected on a very big wall. And um, we went, God, you know, yeah, that's something. So, um, Do you remember any of the players from the London Symphony ever making any kind of comments or remarks about maybe the caliber of the music and the score? Yeah, I think they were all pretty gobsmacked, really. I mean, they were all... Um, <laughs> in those days, you know, I mean, where are we going back to here? For 40-odd uh, years ago, I mean, they were... Orchestras weren't really that sort of, like, into the into the movie thing so much. You know, they, they'd been hired sure. on certain occasions, but um, they do it all the time now, you know, and, and they, they know the language more, they know the situation. But this was something quite different for them. They all very much respected John Williams, and it was really good music. So uh, I think they they turned their head. You know, they were looking. They were supposed to be looking at their music, but on occasions they looked round and saw the screen. You know. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think we all realised that night that you know history had been made and watch out you know this is this is going to be something absolutely brilliant so um Boy, what a moment and it sounded great i mean yeah, it sounded phenomenal phenomenal so uh now i i know on a special edition release of the soundtrack there was a little easter egg where we could hear uh i i think it was maybe three or four takes of the main title ah. and it sounded like there may have been some changes in the orchestration as as sort of the takes went on. Do you recall that sort of experience of, you know, would John change things from the podium or would these be suggestions from maybe Lionel Newman or, or something? Yes, of course, Lionel Newman, a big part in all this. and um, What a guy he was. Changes were made uh, possibly on a musical level between Lionel and John. But um, sometimes, you know, it did come from the director and so on both sure. levels, John was able to cope with it on the podium there and then, play this, do that, bang, you know, and off it went and it wow. got changed. I don't remember how many takes the Star Wars um, main title was or what ended up as the master. Um, it could have been three or four. And yes, quite possibly subtle changes would have or could have been made, you know. Sure, so, sure. Uh, you're very lucky to hear some of those outtakes. I didn't know that existed. So, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, I know tracking down the, the master tapes is, has been kind of an adventure uh, all its own from, from what I understand. From yeah, because we recorded it on a 16-track Studer um, with Dolby A. I mean, for those who want to know, you know. Sure. We did a, a live uh, three-track mix on it. So it was a left, center, right finished mix basically um, and then from track four onwards rippling down through the multi-track was all the separate areas of, the, of mics on, on the orchestra so you had you know a good chance to rebalance if you wanted to sure um, which I don't think they did I think they used uh, for the film they used the, the live mix the live mix the three track live mix was also going to a three track 
35 millimeter magnetic or two 35 millimeter magnetic machines out the back sure. i know it was all everything was running you know i remember that and they they literally took the mag you know and cut it into the film <laughs> wow so and and ken wanberg was responsible for for cutting the mag yeah, totally. Yeah, he was a music editor on it and uh, worked, had worked with John and, you know, after that worked a lot with John. So he, he, he did all that. And um, I think the thing is, you know, I think the 16 track then served to be the album mix, you know, or I'm not sure. quite sure. I can tell you more detail about the Superman sessions, but, you know, the Star Wars one, I was I was very new to it all. I don't have as much memory detail, but I do remember the Star Wars main title and certain other f- bits within the film that uh, that stuck out, you know? Well, one of the most kind of memorable cues, I think, from that score that has definitely stood the test of time, but kind of transcended into another level of pop culture is the uh, cantina band source music, that kind of like space jazz. I think George Lucas described it as Benny Goodman in space. (laughs) Um, But I believe that was recorded on the fourth day of the session. Do you have any memories of that stretch of music? It was a Saturday, I remember. Gosh, does that help? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's actually, when I said just now, I remember other sort of areas. That was another area that I completely remember. And um, it was like a three or four hour session on a Saturday afternoon. And we said, well, what's John doing here? And Eric said, well, it's just um, just some source music, you know, background music. So, we didn't see any film at all. They just—he just wrote this music, and there was, you know, um, we had a few rock guitarists come in. There was a, a keyboard player who was akin to more progressive rock stuff, and I'm thinking, sure. wow, what's going on here? You know, it's weird. And, and we played it all, and it was like, wow, you know, this is this is something completely different. And then um, they put it with the film, and he had to match the guide track with, um, with some other temp music they put in and everything. And that was that. That was our sort of music, cafe music, which was so really weird, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, good stuff. Steel though. drums and synth bass with you know saxophones and clarinets. Yeah. And Had an AR, ARP synth bass, I think, playing or something. And yeah. It was very strange and. Uh, yeah, it was it was something completely different to what I'd been hearing two or three days before, you know. So, uh, uh, yeah, that was another experience. So, <laughs> wow. Now you mentioned um, the the three track, you know, live mix is really being what's heard in the movie. Could you describe Eric's approach to that live orchestral mixing? Something that's so exciting about Star Wars is really from moment to moment, you can almost hear the trumpet faders coming up uh, to kind of catch this beat, and then, you know, maybe the flute faders coming up for for this moment. Um, yeah, how would you describe kind of seeing Eric work like that in real time? Okay, well, we had a setup in the orchestra, basically, of a, of a conventional orchestral setup, where you've got, um, if you're standing um, in front of the orchestra, and you're on, you're on the podium, on your left is the high strings going round to the violas, going round to the cello or the celli, and the basses behind the, the cellos. Um, in the middle, towards the behind the the violas, is the is, is the woodwind, um, usually a block of ten or twelve woodwind. Um, to the left, over in the back, you had the French horns. Uh, to the right, you had the trumpets and the trombones, and possibly a tuba. Uh, that was a basic sort of setup. 
Uh, we used to stick the percussion guys behind the conductor just for easy sort of communication, really. And then behind that to the left was a sort of more dead area where we'd put more percussive instruments or if there was anything like a guitar playing or a drum kit or something um, or whatever. But basically that orchestral setup had what we call spot mics over each and most, most sections. So we were looking at around sure. about probably 16 to 20 spot mics on the orchestra. And then we had sort of left, centre and right overheads um, like a decatree sort of thing. like a, yes and um, this was before i mean uh, we we call it the decatree now but we were doing it sort of then in a in a sort of sort of configuration um and that was it so eric used to sort of listen to the three the three tracks panned left center and right on the monitors so he could hear the whole the room and then we'd fill in with the um bring up the mics for for the sweeteners for for the for the sections and everything and it was all very well rehearsed so i mean the, the, you know the players knew the music very well lionel newman knew it intimately so he could read the score and cue eric where certain things had to come in a bit more bit more focused you know i mean basically all the microphones were on but while while you're recording there were sort of cues to bring other things in which were rehearsed um, prior to the recording with Lionel and Eric and, and obviously John playing the music. So, um, it, you know, each, each cue was memorised, really, and then you just recorded it, and that was it. So, um, and of course there was a view, and I think it may have... I don't know quite the history of it all, but someone's got probably gone back to the 16-track and may have not used the three track anymore and, and have used their own mix again. I, I don't know how or when that happened, but um, the sacred mix on the night was the three track, you know. Sure. So, uh, yeah. That. You know, I think John Williams was really lauded and celebrated at the time for doing a score that seemed more old fashioned, like the kind of thing that you would hear and you know, 1930s film serials or just the old-fashioned fantasy adventure epics of old cinema. Was there kind of an equivalent uh, feeling or sentiment in the recording booth of trying to capture some sort of like older school, old-fashioned sound? Because I know it was also using that Dolby stereo, which was also kind of in the higher fi side of things at the time. I think so. I think it's, um, you know... John has the ability to write loads of music, even if they're talking, you know? And if you look at older movies, the violins are going 90 to the dozen, you know, or they're under there, while people are talking. And you can only do that if you write properly, you know, if you write in a frequency that gets out of the dialogue, but the emotional underlining thing is still going there with, with the strings. I mean. If they're talking a lot, you don't really find John orchestrating for trumpets and trombones. You know, when they're talking a lot, there's a lot of strings because they're pretty high up and you can talk uh, the frequencies of the voice below that. And I think that's a style which was quite old fashioned. And I think, yes, he did adopt that. And I think that's something that they wanted, you know, um, in my opinion. But he seems to have the ability to bring on bring in the whole orchestra as well and people can still talk all over it and understand the dialogue so it's just sort of clever writing you know it's very very clever writing and uh, he follows the emotional content of the dialogue very closely if you really study it you know and uh, pushes and pulls everything and it's just you know 
all adds up layer by layer and yeah, he can do masterful. it other people think they can write music under dialogue and it's they can't you know <laughs> right they, they either say well we can't hear the dialogue or turn on the music you know <laughs> it's not working so <laughs> right absolutely yeah you can't have a drum loop through yeah <laughs> so i don't know if i mean it was possibly a style that they wanted and um they got it you know um and john was good at it so yeah you know, we're, we're curious, uh, it sounds like this was the first occasion where you met John Williams. It must have also been the first time that you met George Lucas. What what were your impressions of that uh, young George Lucas there in the control room? Well, of course, George, had, you know, he wasn't that well known. He'd done, he'd done American graffiti, and um, so I knew he was on his way up, you know, as they say. And... Uh, yeah, he was very quiet, actually. George Lucas was very reserved. I mean, I don't think I really got to have a conversation with him. You know, he's not, sure. or he wasn't that sort of guy. You know, he came in, he was concentrating on what he was doing. He was very friendly. Um, I just remember him as being there and, 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 and solid with everything and just getting on with it, and, and that was great. You know, um, John was 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 great fun, Um for an American, John Williams is very English. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I totally understand what you mean. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, him and Jerry Goldsmith are just like chalk and cheese, but in terms of personality. But um, no, John used to, you know, used to arrive at the studio with his jacket and his and his leather briefcase. He looked like a doctor, you know, and he put his briefcase down <laughs> and he just went out there and he got on with it, you know, and. Uh, Eric and him had a Eric Tollinson and him had a great working relationship, and um, John used to call uh, Eric uh, Mr. T, Mr. T, Eric Tomlinson. So uh, uh, that was a little name he gave him, and um, yeah, and you know we had. Uh, I mean, obviously John was was, you know, quite public when he was on the session and everything, but later scores that we worked with John and got more intimate with him on, on the mixing side on days when we were just mixing um, we could get much closer to him and uh, yeah he, he was he was good fun he was really he, he always kept a distance you know but he was good fun and we had we had some really really memorable times and um, he's, a, he's just a true gentleman he really is I mean you know he was under incredible pressure to get that music sorted and everything and i i don't think i've ever ever seen john williams lose his rag you know ever just yeah professional it's difficult to imagine <laughs> yeah very you know, cool i've heard that and it's kind of hard to believe because that industry you know time is so precious every second counts um it's really fascinating hearing what you're saying uh, i'm curious were there any moments of levity uh, between maybe yourself and John Williams or Eric Tomlinson and John that stand out in your memory? Not really, no. I think it was all pretty sort of, you know, I think I think as, as we got into different film scores, you know, I got to know John more and, you know, I, you know, I haven't really seen him for many, many years and I think, you know, the last time I, I sort of worked with him was probably in the... I don't know, early, mid-80s. It sounds ridiculous, but, I mean, I can remember the man so clearly. And I was really sad to sort of think that I might not see him again for a while, you know? It was just, uh, we had 
we had, you know, you're working in this little bubble in this mixing studio and you do get to know each, each other and everything. So, you know, I mean, well, the whole Anvil thing at Denham closed because the um, yeah. studio needed to be pulled down and that was very sad. But we, Eric and I went to Abbey, Abbey Road, uh, which is another chapter in our lives. And, and John was there for a few years with us, you know, and everything. And uh, Well, and you and Eric were sort of responsible for, from what we understand, almost saving Studio One at, at Abbey Road. Totally. Yeah, Abbey Road won't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I just tell you that story? Is that okay? Oh, please. please. Yeah. All right, so we, it's 1980, and, uh, you know, at the beginning of 1980, we, we got a, a sort of uh, anvil... Um, we're told that basically they need to get out because they only rented the, the, the premises there and they were going to pull the place down. So we were looking for a new recording studio. Um, Anvil split. The audio post-production bit went went up the road at, at, at Denham and found a new house. But the music recording bit was mainly, it was just Eric and myself. Um, we went to Abbey Road and that deal was done over several months. The management uh, with Eric, got to talk with um, Ken Townsend at Abbey Road. They were looking for more time to be sold in Studio One because at that point in 1980, uh, they really hadn't got any work. That that room, would you believe it, was totally empty. And wow. it was just about to be carved up into many little rooms um, to make cassette duplicating suites. <laughs> Horror. <laughs> That's not in the book. You know, we won't find any of that in the book. <laughs> so we negotiated a deal whereby we would sort of, on an hourly basis, Abbey Road would earn a percentage and we'd keep some and we'd sort of stay there for a bit and see where we are, you know, sort of thing. So, um, yeah, so we... we, we uh, and the other thing, you see, Abbey Road had recorded most of the classics uh, at that time and CDs and digital recording hadn't really happened, you know. Uh, the, the, sure. the digital market was not there yet. So they weren't suddenly going in and re-recording everything. It hadn't happened. So um, anyway, to cut a long story short, we moved in. We, we put a hole in the room at the top. We put a 35mm projector in, we put um, a £4,000 electronic screen, uh, cinema screen, which folded up and down. It's still there, I think, if you look. And um, we projected film, and we went in there, and I think Raiders of the Lost Ark was the first film with John Williams, and uh, what a great room. I mean, Abbey Road was just another you know it was the next gear up I mean I love Anvil deeply and I've got some great memories of it but Abbey Road was like oh my god you know <laughs> this is a room yeah. and uh, have you been there by the way have you Not I've been yet, out no. I've been outside of it ah. but I, I haven't been able to tour the actual space okay um, so it was it was a great I mean you know great success with the, with, with the film and stuff and uh, of course this this gave Abbey Road good income because uh, we were busy um, we were doing lots of different films all at one go actually and I um, I started you know I was still Eric's sort of assistant but I even before I left Anvil and we're going back to like 1978 79 I was starting to do sessions myself sure. so I was obviously you know progressing into my own career and everything so you know, 1980 came and uh, we were off doing doing a, our thing. And, and the company there was called Anvil Abbey Road Screen Sound Limited, which was a combination of Abbey Road and Anvil. 
and um, we started the movie thing, you know, and uh, basically we needed to have investment for new equipment, you know, like a new projector, bits and pieces. The control room in Studio One at Abbey Road then was abysmal. It was like a toilet. (laughs) It was just awful. And um, I'm going to get into trouble for saying that. But anyway, (laughs) um, and you could, you know, great, great recording room mics at an old desk, which was great. But you could either hear the music or you could look look out the window and see the film. You know, it was it was all 90 degrees around the wrong way. And um, but, you know, people came. I mean, people came for the for Eric. They came for the room. And um, I remember Spielberg, Steven Spielberg, you know, sort of like sort of standing in the in the control room, making a joke of it, you know, saying, well, which where do you want me? Do you want me to hear the music or do you want me to? We said, whatever you want, Steve. And then he laughed, you know, and he just got on with it. You know, I can't really imagine that happening today, to be honest. But um, yeah, we got on with it. And um, oh, the other thing was I'd started recording uh, separately to Eric. Uh, I was doing a, a big TV number in Studio Two uh, called Brideshead Revisited with um, oh, sure. the composer Jeffrey Bergen, who was an English composer. We did 13 episodes of that, which became an album as well. And they made a feature film of Brideshead Revisited. So um, I was recording that to film. Uh, we put a projection system in, in the Beatles studio in Studio 2. Oh, wow. It's not there anymore, but we did do the similar thing. And we had an old 16mm projector, and we recorded every cue for 13 hours of television off that system, and it worked brilliantly. So, And we didn't have video then, you see. It was all done live to film and um sure. yeah so that was a big big number in studio two and i've had an orchestra of 65 in studio two which is pushing it oh, but wow. you can you can do it you know so this was all very very busy but no one was actually investing any money in the future in terms of studio one control room you know sure we'll probably go back to some more detail if you want to hear it but i mean round about 84 83 eric and i had sort of had enough of that regime and um at, at emi at emi, at EMI. because we ju- we felt we felt we were really sort of like you know well what you know no one's listening to us you know we're doing all the work but it ain't happening so right. we both sort of he went freelance and i i joined cts at wembley as as one mm. of their engineers and they were sort of much better equipped at that time for the day and I just sure. carried on there and then I left after a year and I, I, I went freelance and of course the freelance game then takes you back to all the studios that you used to work in and um, as from about mid late 80s Abbey Road started spending money on, on the control room and you know there was different versions of it but now it's an incredible place I mean we've got yeah. a dead area where you can put a rhythm section uh, separation booths you know, you've got a great control room where 30 people can be, you know. Uh, we had none of that in our day. And uh, it was tough. It was tough. But we got through, you know. And uh, But we were pioneers in, in, in the movie bit at Abbey Road. And, um, you know, I'm not out to get a medal, you know. I just <laughs> say, that's the truth. That's what happened. I, my, name, my name is a director on the Screen Sound Company, as, long as, as well as Eric's. And that's what we did. But it just, it just rather sad when an Abbey Road book or, a, you know, a future maybe seminar does not actually include any of that information, you know? Right. And they tend to just want 
top top layer you know um yeah i mean it's it's undeniable that it's one of the most important recording rooms uh on on the planet but that's uh your and eric's role in that is yeah crucial yeah. crucial history yeah and i think i mean uh, uh, ken townsend would would stand by us any day and, and talk about it uh, what a great move it was and um of course you know things move on people leave and, and that's it i don't i don't want ownership you know i'm just saying that that's how it started and uh sure um otherwise I, I i really believe that had we not gone there um abbey road probably wouldn't have been there now you know it really wouldn't right. so um that's history. <laughs> well, you mentioned early on that, uh, you know, when you first heard those main titles and you heard John Williams' music that, you know, at least uh, the sentiment in the control room and everyone there kind of knew that this was going to be a big hit. Uh, do you have a memory of seeing Star Wars in the theater and any kind of kind of the cultural splash that happened following the film's release? Um, I knew it brought hundreds and thousands of people suddenly to the cinema. Suddenly people were queuing again outside cinemas. Um, people were interested in the content on the screen rather than getting bored, you know, and having a Coca-Cola or something. I mean, it was, it was, it brought people by them, you know, in, in masses back to the cinema. And of course, people that I think also um, began to get much more demanding and interested in sound. Well, the whole thing. Sure. They wanted better picture quality. They wanted, you know, the Dolby Stereo was sort of early on at that time. It, a film like Star Wars just demands bigger sound, better pictures, doesn't it? It just, it's, it's a great platform to start all that stuff with. And I think that, um, you know, I'm not a Star Wars nut. You know, I don't, do, I don't go to conventions and everything. And um, <laughs> You know, I, I worked on it. I'm greatly privileged with it. But I mean, I, you know, I'm not a sort of big follower like uh, a lot of fans are. Sure. sure. So um, that's that's great. You know, I can sort of see it with some sort of um, uh, some distance, really. You know, and I can see that um, Star Wars was a huge impact. And we've seen, well, at least two generations now grow up with it all, you know. Uh, yeah, 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 it's, it's really something. It's great. Well, and you said, I mean, you were there at the beginning. I mean, you were also part of the session for uh, the other two of that original Star Wars trilogy, The Empire Strikes Back and, and Return of the Jedi. Uh, I mean, I'm sure the work of this period might kind of blend together. Any memories that stand out from, from the sessions of, of those films? Okay, um, so we, yeah, so we did, I probably remember the second one more because uh, I'd, I had more experience in the studio and I was sort of on it a bit more. But um, the second one was recorded. We started recording at the last week in 1979, just after between Christmas and the New Year, I remember, because I had to go in over Christmas and set the studio. Um, what a shame. Um, <laughs> so uh, that session went through into, into January, uh, I think, probably maybe February uh, of 1980. Um, and the BBC actually came and uh, recorded um, John Williams re uh, working on that session. Uh, We've seen some of that footage from an old uh, television special. Yeah, it's pretty bad quality on VHS. I don't know if you guys can get a copy of, of an original or something. It was shot on 16mm originally. Um, 
And it, I think for me, it was an incredible documentary about film music, about a composer composing for film music. It, it happened to be John Williams, and why not? But basically what they did, they, they just homed in on one scene um, in its early stages, and they showed you John uh, in his house uh, before recording, uh, going through the, the composition with, I think it was Herbie Spencer, who was the arranger, yeah. And John was explaining to him what he wanted, and da di da di da. And then it cuts, and it says like uh, the voiceover says, seven weeks later at Anvil Studios in Denham, bang, you know, we're all there. <laughs> A little over seven weeks after the spotting sessions in California, the orchestral recording started Anvil Studios just outside London. An hour and fifty minutes of music had been written, arranged, and copied out into orchestral parts. You see the same sequence on the screen and them rehearsing and getting it right. The streamers are going across the screen and John's trying to get the sync right and everything. Uh, well, you've seen it, but there's, there's, there's some great intercuts with Lionel on the intercom. I'm sitting at the back there in a red shirt. You know, and then right at the end of the film, um, it shows you the completely mixed version as it went out with the music and the dialogue at the right level. And it takes people through the journey, you know, I mean, a lot of people think that, you know, probably not so much now, but they used to think that the sound was there when you filmed it, you know? <laughs> Hello? Right. Mm, not. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so uh, so that was, that, was, that was a great time on the second, second uh, Star Wars film because uh, the BBC film crew were filming and everything. It was quite intense and, you know, when... Uh, and it was a it was a different dynamic the second time because it was so famous. You know they could have afforded sure. to do it in space for real, so they didn't ask for a discount. <laughs> well, that's nice, especially if you have to come in for over Christmas. Well, absolutely. I don't think I charged any more, but anyway. Um, so you know it was it was a different dynamic. This was big time suddenly. It really was, and everybody was there. There was um, the other co-director was. His name now, but uh, Irvin Kirshner. Yeah, that Irvin. Yeah, Irvin was there. So a, a bigger entourage, and more people coming into the control room for playbacks. You know, um, people brought their girlfriends in, their girlfriends, mothers. You know, to sort of uh. see John Williams. And, it, and it <laughs> if was it was like, these days, it would be people taking selfies and Instagram yeah, and yeah, yeah. And I think John was sort of really okay with it, but you know, he was there to do a job, and we yeah. we had to just honor that, you know, because. Uh, it can get like a circus otherwise, you know. Sure. And um, but equally great stuff, and we had we had some good sessions. And then the third, so that was it wasn't the last batch of sessions at, at Anvil, but um, it was it was leading up to uh, it was like six months before we got out of Anvil that we did the second Star Wars. Sure. And then the third one was done at Abbey Road. Um, so um, and that was that was the return of the Jedi, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Eric Tomlinson has got a poster called Revenge of the Jedi. Right, that was the original title, supposedly. Yeah, and he's got, he's, he had that on his wall, so uh, that was quite a good thing to have. A collector's item, we A real collector's <laughs> item, and I don't know where it's gone, so... <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned Herbie Spencer a moment ago. Did uh, did Herb Spencer come to any of those sessions? Oh, yes, yeah, he was there all okay. the time. He was in the control room, uh, great guy, really lovely man, and... Um, 
you know, I mean, his work had sort of been done, really, but um, if, if ever changes to be made, he would he would get there. And uh, brilliant, brilliant musicians. I mean, all of them were just like, you know, just get a pencil and next minute it's done. You know, it's great. And um, yeah, I mean, this was all before. Um, I mean, I love the computer world now. Look, you know, I'm surrounded by it. But you know, sure. there wasn't a single computer in the in the control room. You know, I mean, it was all done with pencil and paper and rubbers and stuff. And uh, sorry, erasers, not rubbers. <laughs> uh, I have to remember where I'm talking. Um, you know, so it was just yeah. He was he was a great guy, and uh, wow. it was a pleasure to to have experienced his work as well. So, would it often happen when those copyists making those changes? Uh, same day or would those uh, revised cues usually get um, kind of flagged for a later session? Um, they could, uh, it depends how much it had to change. I mean, sometimes it was a complete rewrite, you know, uh, not so much a rewrite, but major surgery, you know, if, if, um, if, the, you know, if something had just gone a bit out of kilter, in which case they would in, in John's case would, you know, put it onto another session and, uh, that would be okay, but most of the time, you know, it wasn't really, uh, it wasn't really anything wrong with it. I mean, a little little change here and there and stuff, and maybe some notes that were wrong on the copying, but it was all pretty well sorted and uh, done for them to work on when they were in the studio because it had to be, you know. I mean, they time is money, and uh, I was just amazed at the, you know, just the sheer professionalism of the whole thing coming into it fairly new. I mean, it was just amazing. And John's a great conductor. I mean, he really is. He just gets the best out of everybody in a very, very lovely way. And he's really on it, you know. You know, there's times when we've cried, you know. We've come, he's, oh, come sure. in, he's come in on a playback and we've been in tears, you know, because the sheer level of emotion he can make happen is just amazing. And, you know, it's, oh. for, that, it's for that reason... That I I'm I I'm in that job, you know, because there's no other job like it, you know. It's just right. How lucky, how lucky to be, you know. Yeah, that that meeting of professionalism and yeah, artistry. Yeah, totally. And I mean, you guys being, you know, so into what you're doing and, and knowing a lot, probably a lot more underscore stuff than I do, you know. You can see where I'm coming from. You know, it it it's it, it's fantastic to to yeah. um, for someone who's not actually experienced any of that it's hard to let it's hard to say it's hard to sort of explain it you know it's um right it's a privilege so uh yeah <laughs> sometimes there's not been a dry eye in the house so <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure that's the a common scenario with john williams i know uh both marty and i can definitely relate to that uh there are several sections um particularly in uh the empire strikes back where john's score has been dialed out or you know there's been some editing or mixing around i imagine a lot of that happened after the recording session but do you have any memories of um either a director or gary kurtz or ken wanberg talking about something maybe not working in a particular scene no i don't actually no i mean that was um a i don't remember any of that discussion at the time and b of course you know when it goes to the to the to the dubbing room um that's it we're we're out of it you know so i don't know um what those reasons were um so i really can't comment you know sure they do whatever they want at that point you know i mean i can uh, some nightmare stories where they've actually taken 
half of the music out, you know, not with oh, John, no. not with John Williams, but you know, right. some others and stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, just just very quickly going back to the emotional content of John Williams, who, I mean, I can't, you know, E.T. was recorded in the states. I didn't have anything to do with it, but um, John came in um, not long after that to Abbey Road, and we worked on a, another film um, with Christopher, another Christopher Reeve um, film, and. Um, you know, he wrote out some of the he wrote out the ET theme for me on a bit of manuscript and signed it, which I've still got. Oh. That's just like, hello, thank you very much. That's great. But <laughs> I can't listen to side two of ET without bawling. I mean, it's just like, oh. um, when, you know, the Forget goodbye sequence yeah. is just horrendous. I mean, it's just, it's beautiful. It's a sweet. I mean, you know, I've only got to put the, the recording on, and it's just amazing. But I will tell you this very quickly, and, and this is in, in honour of Eric Tomlinson. Um, when we recorded the score for Superman in 1978, summer of 1978, I thought John John's score with that was, you know, much sort of more... It wasn't so much sci-fi. It was it was broader and more romantic in places. Right. Just Remember it so, so well. Anyway, there's a scene where uh, Christopher Reeve decides he has to head north and you know the stepdad's died and there's a scene in the cornfield with his with his mum and yeah. he, he looks north you know and uh, oh it's just masterful yeah that, so this cue I, don't, I forget what it's called on the album i did find out but eric and i always knew it knew it as 5m3 okay that's I think this, jonathan's death or jonathan's something? death it, it may be that on one after i don't know it looks sure. uh anyway you can have a look later but uh I used to just crumble listening to this cue because it all starts off with a very ethereal choir and everything and then it has the themic quality and it builds and it builds and it's just like, wow, when he did it, we were just like, you know, fantastic. And it stuck in my mind and so um, over the years, Eric used to come and visit me and we'd have a quite a few glasses of wine and say... <laughs> Should we do a 5M3? And we went, yeah. So we came into my studio and we played 5M3. And both of us were like, you know, completely uh, great. And he said to me, you know, he said, I think I should have that played at my funeral. And so I said, yeah. I said, well, it'll be a bit of a powerful moment, you know. So I did. I arranged all the, when he did die, and I, I arranged the music um, for oh, it. Oh, wow, Alan. I had... Um, Love theme from Superman being played very quietly and discreetly as it as they came in, and then we had the hymns and stuff. At the end, the person doing the service said, "Would you please sit now and listen to this piece of music?" And we just sat there in the church. There was Eric's coffin, and we played Five M Three. Wow! Oh my goodness! It was my it was my tribute to him, you know, and uh, that's so beautiful. Yeah, and everyone just they were just crumbled. They just absolutely crumbled. I wanted to tell John Williams that, but I, I couldn't get through to him for whatever reason. And I just wanted to let him know that, you know, that was 
that was a moment, you know. So, uh, wow. so the power of film music. I just wanted to sort of let you know about that. So. <laughs> God, that's that is such a beautiful story. Thank Alan. you for sharing yeah, that. If, if anyone listening knows someone who knows someone, please do pass along that message. Boy, it's there is something about that that particular cue. Actually, there was a BMI award called the John Williams Award that was recently awarded to the man himself and. Uh, I saw some clips from the ceremony. They had these talking heads with all these other composers. And there was a moment with Al Silvestri, and he was talking about that cue. And he was getting choked up. He almost couldn't couldn't finish talking about this. Ah, this well, yeah, I was. I mean, I, I've got to mention it now. I'm, I'm sort of a bit, you know, but I mean, yeah, I've, I, could, I could listen to that all the time. And it's just something about it which just hits a nerve for a lot of people. And... Um, yeah, um, so I'm glad I'm glad you relay that other story because uh, it it is it's a mar- it's a marvelous sort of moment you know in um, in music and you know John I mean the thing with John is he can write you know all the brass stuff and everything and and all the big stuff but he can he can really just churn you over with a few strings as well you know and um, yeah absolutely I got to know him really well on Superman one because um, <clears throat> we recorded that more as a multi-track type thing to be mixed uh, later. Was that was that a to 24 track then by then? We went yes at that time we we'd bought an MCI we'd gone from Studio to MCI 20 I'm going to you know if you want the technical thing we'd gone to the MCI 24 track. And that was good and um we did some tape editing on that quite a lot. Y- you can hear some of it. <laughs> yeah, you can hear some. Oh dear, that was me. You see, so. <laughs> no, we we actually love that that some of the edits on Superman. Those yeah, are you can hear you can moments. hear some of them. But anyway, I did most of the edits there, and I would be in a room all day just with John Williams. He'd have the score, he'd have his cigar, and. Uh, you know, I'd be sitting there as a how old was I? Twenty one or something with a China graph. Wow. We'd be working together, and a, and it was it was cool. You know, I mean, I had a couple of beers, you know, and he'd have a cigar, and I was smoking. The whole room was full of smoke in those days, you know. And um, <laughs> very very quick story though, but on on the uh, Superman on the main titles of Superman, um, we recorded that on one evening session, and he did eight takes of it eight takes of the wow. main title of Superman, which was pretty hard on the orchestra. And he couldn't get it right in one take. So he came in the next morning uh, and he did a what he called a roadmap. He went through the score and he marked up, having listened to all the takes, he listened. He, he marked up what he wanted from each, each take to make the master cut. So he said, are you ready? I said, yeah, fine. So he went for it and we did... S- 53 edits on an eight minute piece of music and it took us six hours okay um and we play it and he said that's great he said but the opening fanfare we've got a better one you know do you know it's take whatever it was take six and i'd lost it i'd completely lost it by then i mean I'd, i was very good at marking things up but i oh, lost sure. it uh anyway i looked in the waste paper bin and there it was um i'd marked it on the tape but it was hanging out and there was cigarette ash and there was beer on it and stuff and everything, a general <laughs> day's events. <laughs> so I got it got it out of the bin and I just wiped it and I stuck it back in on... So the first opening fanfare, the first eight bars or something of Superman, uh, went in having been in the trash bin all day. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Well, and I know there's an interesting kind of phenomenon in the... Uh, I, I imagine maybe this happened in the dubbing room, but in the actual film version of the opening title, there's some interesting kind of pitch warbling that happens right when the trumpets hit, bah, 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 where it's almost like a little bit sharp. Yeah, maybe they had to like do some quarter editing or something. Or something. Yeah. yeah, I've heard that, and I don't know what that is. It's like, I mean, I remember we had... Um, we changed our tape stock at the time and I think we did a couple of tests or something and it wasn't as good as one of the other batches but it may have been that but I don't know how it got through you know I mean it's sort of uh, it was all pretty crude in those days you know it was sure, sort of, sure. uh, um, yeah but you know we anyway we got through it yeah. so and you, I mean you can almost hear a similar moment uh, at the same moment of impact on the original Star Wars main main title it seems like it must be a dubbing just in the film because when you listen to the, the soundtrack, like, soundtrack releases there, yeah. it's not there oh so it's okay on the soundtrack it's good yes yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. just like when you're watching the film i imagine maybe it was a time it's similar to like i know uh sometimes for like trailer music like i know on the the hook trailer um they they sped up a little bit of that kind of yeah. prologue cue oh, okay. and it's right. pitched up and everything okay. well who knows what they do you know in that situation yeah. they, they're cutting it around it, and stuff you know there's another infamous story from the superman main title from uh dick donner i think on some uh, behind the scenes thing he says that uh he ruined the first take of the main title um because he was just so so excited he said he he burst into the room because I know. it sounded like the orchestra was actually saying Superman. Um, I know. He got very excited. Dick was a great guy. I mean, I, you know, they were working out at Pinewood during the day um, and a lot of the recording sessions in the early part of the uh, music recording were, were done in the evening. And Pinewood Studios was about three miles away from Anvil. So he, he came down in his sort of, you know, cherry red Rolls Royce Corniche parked it outside, and there was a load of <laughs> load of people with him. And they all came in, and it was party time, you know. And uh, yeah, you knew when Dick was in the control room, you know. It was it was good fun. And um, yeah, I think he did actually. He did. I think he went, went straight out into the, into the room when they were recording, or they the die away or something. And uh, but there were eight takes anyway of Superman One. Uh, <laughs> but we had about thirty-two recording sessions for that film over a period wow. of you know two or three months it was because um, they were right cutting it as we went really it was it was not and then they recut it and stuff so wow. Stuart Baird I think was the film editor on that and um, yeah but it was it was great um, great I remember that so well that film it was really really good and uh, we had the um, the flying sequence where him and Margot take off from the balcony you know yeah. Um, that was going to be a song um, sung. In the end, she just, because she couldn't really sing, she just spoke it, you know? And, um, right, right. Uh, but it was going to be written or sung by Joan Armour Trading, oh, um, a black artist in, London, in in England. She's been going, she's been around for 40 odd years. Her big hit is Love and Affection. Uh, she's done 26 albums. So she was quite a big name. And, um, you probably don't know her, but you know she she's a big figure in the in the pop rock world, and uh, I wish I'd taken some photographs because one lunchtime meeting, John Williams was meeting Joan Armour Trading, and they sat in the control room together, and they they actually had a chat, you know, and I was there, and I wish I'd had a little camera. So I did I did get some photographs of John, you know. 
but um, but not then. So that was that was a candid moment, you know. So. Mm. Oh wow, that's terrible. But th- they ended up um, sort of scrapping that idea before she got the chance. to Yeah, record. it didn't go any further. I don't know why it didn't. I mean, she, I couldn't see. I mean, <laughs> complete, absolutely two opposites: Joan Armour training and John Williams. I mean, who would have known? You know. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so. Uh, I mean, you know, it's it brings up an interesting point because uh, those of us that are fans of film music, we we approach John, you know, from that perspective as a fan and specifically about the music. But any opportunity you get to speak with someone that's worked with him professionally, there's a whole other set of traits that people admire and, and love about the man. And his connection with other musicians really is something marvelous. You know, I mean, everyone knows him as a gentleman. You know, he's a truly a gentleman, um, but he's no pushover. You know, he, he's the man, and uh, it's just an incredible aura about him. But he just gets on with it. You know, he just rolls up his sleeves and he gets on with it, and he's great. And uh, the proof of the pudding is when you hear it. good so um, yeah I I mean I feel completely privileged of sharing those moments you know I mean I I hadn't planned that it was good fortune that brought me to Anvil well through you know after Anvil meeting Eric and then going on to meet these other people but um, yeah yeah, it was really really good and I think people like John you know they up your game you know you're pretty good at what you do when you come and work with them you're better, you know, and you come out of it better. So, yeah, it was... Uh, and of course, we had a lot of, you know, after the sort of Star Wars thing, you know, at Anvil, uh, it became quite a famous place. And um, a lot of, um, how should I put it nicely, B, <laughs> B-type sort of movies <laughs> wanted to come along and be and get the Star Wars sound. You know, well, you know, it, there's a lot of things that, add up to the Star Wars sound and, and mainly it's John Williams so you know if you're not John Williams uh, it ain't going to happen so you know that's that's the thing but uh, wow. yeah but they'd all you know a lot of them came along afterwards and, and did their bit it's a bit like recording you know, Abbey Road 2 and you know idolizing the Beatles and everything so uh, right and it's like oh we've got a hard day's night no not quite yeah okay you know it, it, it isn't necessarily the Beatles but you've recorded there so that's fun you know so um, yeah absolutely well I mean Star Wars you know some 40 odd years later still going going so strong um, we all owe so much to John Williams and you and Eric and everyone in, involved and in really setting that franchise off on this incredible I think so, and a lot of, you know, after that, when I, as I was making my own way into into the recording industry, mainly in film music, you know, I mean, a lot of people have um, been very respectful and 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 said, what a, you know, you you have worked with the greatest guys, you know, you, would you come and work with us? And it's weird, you know, it's sort of you go and work with with someone else, and they're very respectful of where you've come from, and it, it got me a lot more gigs, you know, which is great, sure. and. Um, you know, I, I worked with Hans Zimmer in the early days before he was well known, and uh, he he was very excited that I, you know, recorded with John Williams and people like that because he was he was wanting to get into the movie industry. So he was gonna, you know, he could use a name suddenly. Oh well, Alan's worked with so and so, and and then get on. I mean, Hans, you know, Hans would have been 
um, you know, up there, whatever happened. He just had that situation. He 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 was <laughs> sure. gonna, he was going to make it, you know, and uh, that's great. But uh, we used to do a lot of. Uh, mixing and recording of uh, in in his electronic way of, of of movies that you'll never ever see but we we started in 84 doing a lot of dolby surround mixing you know the actual music mixes in dolby surround which was quite quite new at the time so um Oh, uh, and he was always a pioneer you know every time you saw a bit of equipment advertised you know this is the new akai sampler I'd walk into his studio the next day and he'd have 10 of them, you know, in a rack. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. yeah. I mean, yeah, he's always been a great champion of uh, sound technology. For sure. Totally. And he knows, he knows how to work it all and everything. And he's, he's got the gift of the gab. He's, he knows how to entertain directors and, he, but he knows, you know, he knows his stuff. He knows where, where the heart is in, in that music. It's a different sort of music. But he's become more orchestral, I think, over the years as well, you know. And um, hey, you know, he's very successful now. So uh, yeah. So if you ever talk to him, say hello. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alan, this has just been such a joy for both of us. And I mean, so many incredible stories that you've shared with us. Thank you so much for your honesty and your time and for your really fantastic memory. <laughs> well, yes, yeah, so I'm glad you're recording it, but well, I'm recording it as well because, you know, one day I, I might forget it all. But uh, um, no, I, I, you know, it's, I have a passion for it all and everything. And I, I, I don't record the big sessions anymore, but, um, you know, I do audio post. I write my own stuff for film and television a bit. And, uh, you know, I'm very, I, I listen back to some of those things when I was 20 and it comes through in me. I'm no John Williams, but, you know, I'm just saying that you just... Right, it's, it's all a part of you. And that discipline and all that stuff and everything. So, um, hey, you know. Well, look, you know, I've gone on a bit, as I do. No, this, but... is, this has been so terrific, Alan. And, you know, I think... Um, something that separates the Star Wars franchise from maybe other pieces of cinema is it's always been this great uh, transatlantic partnership. And so, yeah, we a couple of Yanks here, we really enjoy getting to connect across the pond, as it were. My pleasure. Take care. Okay, you take care. Bye. today's episode and a very special massive thank you to mr alan snelling himself if you are enjoying the show and are so inclined please feel free to leave a review for the podcast at apple podcasts that's a great way to help more listeners discover underscore yes you can find us on all manner of social media facebook youtube you can find every episode of this show as well as some of our fun supplemental materials at underscorepodcast.com if you have a comment or question or something that you'd like to share with us, you can send us an email at the underscore show at gmail.com. And as always, you can follow us on Twitter at underscore underscore show. The second underscore is silent. That's all for this week, everybody. And remember, we listen because we love. Take care.
Our show is made possible thanks to our generous patrons, including Jean-David Blanc, Travis Anderson, Richard Welch, Jackie Brueggemann, Josh Lucan, Charlie McCarran, Kevin Wang, Jordan Kolosinski, Carlos, Alex Steff, Benji Inniger, Desmond Clark, BJ Crawford, Simon Parker, and David Liu. Thank you so much for your support and for listening. Underscore is part of the Marcado Brothers Podcast Network.